Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you that we could share at this table and remember you. Lord, thank you for that uh, special memory you gave us to take bread, to take cup, and to remember your body on a cross, your blood poured out, paying the eternal price. So we're grateful. Lord, we thank you that we can gather here and at, at home and at wherever people are joining us right now. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your voice. And we want you to teach us. So we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm just going to I'm going to sit down for this one, which feels weird for me, but <laughs> tipping over while preaching could be more problematic. More memorable for you, but more problematic for me. So, But as I was preparing, I was preparing a whole new series for us, and uh, it feels like, in my lifetime, you guys could, some of you have more lifetime to deal with, it feels like the world's coming apart a little bit, does it not? At least in my lifetime. I haven't lived through a world war so I don't know that experience. But it's just, it just seems like there's a constant something that's broken, that's fractured, that's messed up. I mean, COVID is just one part of it. Uh, then we've, we've had just all the social unrest. It feels that the country is m- more divided now, more, and not just divided, but hostily divided. I think we, we were learning that from one of our podcasts, that there's always been different views, but now people are more sort of... Uh, protective of their views and hostile towards others. There's not so much a live and let live going on right now, so there's a lot of collisions that way. Uh, There's financial stresses and inflation. You can't go a minute without hearing the inflation word, so there's some financial stresses people are feeling. I've been reading some articles lately about uh, that the West is in a massive drought. We don't really feel that up here, like drought. It just rained constantly yesterday morning. But if you look down in Lake Mead, this huge reservoir is draining, and that reservoir feeds you know, California and Arizona, and it's lower than it's ever been. And so you're just like, ooh. So there's all these pressures and stresses going on, and, and the world feels fractured. And then we've talked about this. We are truly in a post-Christian context in the West. The West meaning the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia. That's kind of the the ideological West, it's post-Christian, which doesn't mean after, it means anti. So Christian views are seen as regressive. They're seen as hostile. They're seen as bad for our culture. And there's this whole concept of deconstructing. We need to take apart. We need to pull them apart. And so the experience of of a follower of Jesus in our country right now has this experience we're going to look at today, this idea of exile. There's an experience of exile. There's an experience of hostility. And so exile is defined as, this is Oxford's dictionary, the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. So to exile someone is to say you can no longer be in your homeland. We're kicking you out. We're, we're throwing you out. You are a political opponent or a criminal, and we just you know, no longer wants you. Think of Australia. That's how they populated Australia, right? We're just sending all the, the criminals from England down there. And so we're not actual exiles, right? I still live in my same house. Probably you live in your same house or same culture. But, uh, but it feels like it's not home. I don't know how many of you have heard say, this, is, this doesn't feel like where I grew up. 
This doesn't feel like what it was like when I went to school. It feels like it's not home anymore. It feels like we're in a foreign land. It feels like our values are not supported. The language we speak is a foreign language. And that's actually a common experience for people in the scripture. God's people are often actually in exile or they're sent to a foreign land or they're living like they're in exile, living in a sense that I'm not at home. And so I want us to do a series this spring in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, these are Old Testament books, and they describe a people who are actually in exile, but they get to go home. They actually get to return home. But one of the reasons I wanted us to see this, I think we're going to find some common experiences that they experience, this idea of being in exile, and it's this experience of tension, right? Tension, like a rope is being stretched in opposite directions. There's tension. And the tension that we're going to see in this study is a tension between people following God and doing what he says, and it's still going poorly. A lot of times we like the idea, I'm obeying God, we're doing exactly what he says, therefore the way should be smooth, and the rough places are out, and the valleys are lifted up, I'm following the Lord, I'm following his plan, this should work, I'm experiencing opposition. And that's what we find when you're in exile, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to do what he says, there's still a tension of opposition. There's still a tension that not everybody likes what you're doing. Not everybody appreciates that you're, you're sincerely trying to follow God. And so you can be doing 100% what God wants you to do and still face opposition. You can be exactly following God's will and people are against you. And so this, this idea that if I'm following God it all works out... Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be resistance, and there's this tension, but I'm obeying you, God, I'm doing what you want, yeah, and not everybody likes it, and we live in an exiled planet, we're not really home here, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, and we're awaiting for him to come, so I thought this would be a good series for us to look through, how did these God's people Years ago, living in exile and then obeying him, but still facing resistance. How did they do it? What did they look to? How did God come through? So that we, as people living today, can feel like, I'm doing what God wants, and there's opposition. And people don't like it. And this doesn't feel like I'm home. This doesn't feel like what I think is accepted. How do we function? And so that's what we're going to see in the series. I think it's very timely for us today. So specifically, here in chapter 1... Our first section in Ezra, I want us to see that God can move anyone at any time to bring redemption. God can move anyone at any time to bring redemption. That's our main theme today. God can move anyone at any time to bring redemption. So I got to give you a little backstory. Okay, so some of you that are non-history people are like, ah, oh, and other people love history and be like, yay. So whichever you are, hang in there. The scripture is a, a history of God working in history with people. And so we can learn from them at any time. And so what, what we find in the, the backstory to our books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the nation of Babylon has come in and began to subjugate the nation of Judah and where Jerusalem is. 
This is God's people. God made a people called Israel, and he gave them a promised land. And you can read that story through the Old Testament. And not long after King David, that Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, uh, after King Solomon, actually. And the northern kingdom's called Israel, called Ephraim, you might read it. And sometimes it's just called Samaria. That kingdom gets destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, gone, never comes back. The southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, where King David reigned, uh, they hang on a little longer, and, and, and they are basically still rebellious, and God's still angry with them because they're rebelling against him. So he begins to send in a punishing nation, the nation of Babylon. So in 605, the armies of Babylon surround Jerusalem, and they subjugate them. So they don't wipe them out, but they basically say, we're in control now, you send us all the tax money, and they deported all the, uh, the kings, the princes, all the, the nobles, the wise people, all, anybody with, you know, that was a really, you know, smart youth. You know, all the people in like your AP classes, you're gone, right? Anybody that's got some promise, you're gone. So they move them all out. This is when Daniel goes to Babylon, I believe, is right here. There's the first wave. They take a bunch of the stuff out of the temple, and they basically say, they take the king away, and they say, all right, you're the new king. And what they do, they move a bunch of people out. And then they say, all right, any of the poor people, if there's an empty vineyard, it's yours. Take it. Move in. Farm it. And like, woohoo! So you just went from homeless to I've got a vineyard over here. And so the idea was, hey, we like this new Babylon guy. He just gave me a vineyard. He just gave me an orchard. This is amazing. And so... We're going to control you by taking away the leaders, replacing it with other people, and the poorest of the land can have whatever they want. So that happens in 605, and they don't, they're not very good subjects. They don't pay. They kill one another. They don't listen. And so there's a couple more visits of King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, and he finally says, enough. And there's a total destruction in 587 B.C., they break down the walls, they burn the city, they take every article out of the temple, they smash it down, they burn it down, and like, that's, we're done with this. We tried to do the nice route. So in 587 B.C., God's people, it's gone, and they haul almost all of them. The ones who weren't killed, they hauled away to Babylon, and it's just the poorest of the land, and whoever else wants to move in there. So let me read you a little of that backstory, and then we'll jump in. This is in the book of Second Chronicles. This is just kind of talking about that period under Babylon. So Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. So you get the idea, right? We're not going to listen to God. We're not going to respond to you. We don't, we're not going to listen to Nebuchadnezzar either. So it says, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Right? So they picked up all the worship practices of the foreign nations. Which if you're someone think, well, what's the big deal? Well, some of the foreign nations... Uh, their worship was burning kids in the fire. They, they had human sacrifice, and Israel picked that up. So that, that was kind of on the top of God's list of, this is not good. He says, I never asked you to do that, nor did it even come into my mind. 
Like, I would never ask you to do that. And that's some of the stuff they were doing. So it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers. These would be the prophets. Despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. So God said, I tried to call you back. You didn't care. You didn't listen. You hated them. You killed them. Until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another word for the Babylonians. Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. It's not sounding too good, right? I mean, utter destruction, utter failure. And not only have you sort of lost the war, you've been hauled off to Babylon. You've been moved to a place you don't know, a language you don't speak, a country you don't want to be. And you're hauled off there. That's the reality. That's where we find, uh, that's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up. That's where we are. So if you want to open to Ezra, it's right after the book of Second Chronicles. Some of you uh, <clears throat> maybe have re- read it ahead of time. Some of you going, I've never read this book. Who is this guy? Ezra and Nehemiah, they're originally in the original Hebrew were one book. So they've been divided up. And it covers a period of over 100 years. So the first six chapters we read are written by Ezra, but he's not personally there. They're written from court documents and things he's found. And then you get to chapter 7 and on, Ezra's actually on the scene. So this first part, he's writing with information he's gathered. So I want to read chapter 1, and then uh, we'll dive in. Ezra chapter 1. It says, "In, In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and the the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place, of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, 
with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So that's the whole chapter 1. And remember, this is what we're looking at. God can move anyone at any time to bring redemption. So this says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So who's that guy? Who's Cyrus? He was a great king. He was born around 590 B.C. He comes to power in 559 B.C., and he basically conquers all of the Babylonian Empire. So Babylon ruled the sort of known world at the time. Cyrus the Great conquers all of that. He, he conquered and won uh, beat Babylon without even shooting an arrow. You can read it. The story's at the end of the book of Daniel. He just kind of came in and took over. And so they become the world power. It's called the Medo-Persian Empire. It spans from Asia in the east. They were in parts of northern getting over towards western India, up north. It goes all through modern day, today would be modern day Iran is where Persia is. It covers most of what's modern day Iraq. It goes all the way over through what's Babylon, all the way over to Judah, to Jerusalem. It goes up north and even starts to go west into kind of what we'd say is eastern Europe. And you can read about him. He's very famous. He's very known. And uh, he had wars with the Greeks, so there's kind of wars between east and west. So he's the guy that takes over from Babylon. He's the guy, Cyrus the Great. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this guy is a world conqueror, and God stirs in his heart. So he makes a proclamation, right? Puts in a writing. <clears throat> Everyone can go home, right? He says, God's given me all power, all the kingdoms on earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. And then he says, whoever wants to go can go. That's basically what he's saying in verses 1 to 3. I'm going to build, rebuild the temple. Anybody who wants to go can go. God can move anyone at any time. This is pretty amazing to me that he can do this. Um, Notice first there it said, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So when Israel is conquered, there was all these prophets saying, oh no, God's going to bring us back. Don't worry, any day now. And Jeremiah said, nope, it's going to be 70 years. You're going to be, it's 70 years. That's what it is. So if you jump over to Jeremiah 29, 10, this is exactly what Jeremiah says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So when Judah's conquered, Jeremiah is the prophet. Jeremiah is there when, the, when Jerusalem falls. He's there. And he's, God's saying, it's going to be 70 years for Babylon. It's going to be 70 years, not less, 70 years. 
Now, this verse, you often know it. Many of you know this verse, but you don't know the context is this, right? It says, for I know the plans I have for you. Maybe you got that verse written down. I got a piece of painting with that verse. Yeah. The context is, I know the plans I have for you. You're going to be 70 years under Babylonian rule. That's the context. This is plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we told him, you're going to go into exile, I'm going to bring you back. It's going to be 70 years, but I'm going to bring you back. And so there's this great promise to a people in exile, I've got you, I've got this on a timer, it's not going to be less than that, I've got you. And so right here, the beginning of Ezra is linking that. He's like, yep, Cyrus, God says it's going to be 70 years. And then it specifically says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. He awakened it. He roused it. He moved it. What's interesting is there's actually a lot of artifacts. This is found, this is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And you can find this in the British Museum. And Cyrus has his own words for this. So this is basically what happened. I'm running short on time, so I don't know if I'll read it. I don't know how to read that language. It's been translated. But uh, basically, Babylon's plan was every nation we conquer, we haul all the people off, and we move other people in. And Cyrus comes in and goes, you know, that made everybody mad and they hate us. I've got an idea. I'm going to send everybody home. So all the nations that have been conquered by Babylon and now controlled by Persia, you can read it. It's in Cyrus' own words on here. He says, I had an idea to send them all home. Right? He says, all the kings who sit on thrones from every quarter, from the upper sea to the lower sea, those who inhabit the remote districts, the kings of the land of Amaru, which kind of means west, who live in tents, all of them. So he goes on. But basically he says, I collected them and I returned them. I returned them to their settlements And here's what he thinks. He thinks he's making all the gods happy. He says, I returned them and the gods of the land of Sumer and Akkad, which Nabonidus to the fury of the lords of God had brought to Shuana. So he basically is saying, I sent them all back. I told people they could go back. I wanted their temples rebuilt. He's saying, I did this. So this is one of those cool places when you can read the Bible and go, okay, Cyrus sent the Jews back. And then they dig something up out of the ground and they go, oh, sure enough. He actually did this. He did it not only the Jews, he did it with lots of people groups. So this is one of those places where archaeology uh, shows, yep, the Bible is actually telling the truth. But the interesting thing is, he says he's doing it so his god Marduk will have favor on him. Right? Here in Ezra, it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he sent him home. Right? Thus says Cyrus, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdom. And he has charged me to build him a house. Now, I don't know how that works. Did he have a dream? Because here he's saying, the God of heaven told me to build him a house. And he says, and he lives in Jerusalem. He doesn't realize he reigns everywhere. So somehow, I don't know if Cyrus has a dream or a vision, but he knows I need to send him home. I need to send the Jews home and build it. Let me show you one more cool thing about that before we make some application. If you look over in the book of Isaiah 44, it talks about God going to do this very thing. 
And what's interesting is Isaiah is prophesying in the late 700s B.C. Cyrus is born in 590 B.C. So we're over 100 years before he's even born. This is what God is saying. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. This is before they've even been destroyed. He's already prophesying they're going to be repaired. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your river? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose? This is over 100 years before he's been born. You catching that? He's already saying, this is his name, he's going to do my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. For thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. Right? He's saying, I'm going to make Cyrus be exalted to power. That you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isn't that interesting? I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So God, hundreds, over 100 years before he's even born, says Cyrus is going to raise up. I'm going to give him the kingdoms. He's going to do exactly what I want, even though he doesn't know me. Which when you read the cylinder in Cyrus's own words, he's not saying, therefore I decided to worship Yahweh. He's clearly the God in control. He's just saying, well, he just told me to send them back. He doesn't know him, but I found that amazing that God can move anyone at any time. He can move any king. He can move any ruler. He can move any. They don't have to be a worshiper of him for God to say, you're going to accomplish my purposes. I'm going to say it before you're even born. I'm going to make you a world ruler, and you're going to do exactly what I want you to do, even if you don't know me. I find that incredibly hopeful. That God can do anything now. He can move any heart. He can turn any ruler, anyone in any place in the direction he wants them to go. And I want you to imagine the hopefulness of that. Because you can feel very helpless, right? We were kind of freaking out about, you know, two years of pandemic restrictions. These people were 70 years exiles, right? 70 years. Most of the people who were alive inside Jerusalem had died. There's only a few of them. We'll read about them later. There's only a few. They're probably kids when they were deported 
they get to come back. So the most of people are second generation. They probably had this idea, here we are, we're stuck in Babylon. We, Jerusalem burned. Grandpa told the story every year at the feast, how it burned, and he wept all the way, and we're tired of the story, and now we're stuck in Babylon. And, and then now Persia takes over. This is getting even worse. We're stuck. Nothing good's going to happen. We're stuck. And then God can turn <laughs> the most powerful ruler in the world and say, oh, I put you here for this. Oh, yeah, go home. Oh, yeah, I'll pay for it. Do you see that? So I'll give you all this stuff back. And so I think there's incredible hope and the confidence we can have. It doesn't matter what it looks like. God can work today. God can work in any world ruler, anyone of authority, whether they know him or not, they can accomplish his purpose. And there's this whole piece in here in this first chapter. There's an echo of the Exodus story. The Exodus is God delivering his people from slavery. We sang about it earlier, right? I'm not a slave to fear. Did you catch that? When they were able to go home, right? To let each survivor be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts. Anybody who wants to give it to you, give it to him so you can go home. He says, then rose up the heads of the father's houses and they wanted to go. Everyone whose spirit of God stirred, we're going to come back to that. It says, all who were about them aided them. So it's not only did they left, people like, here, take all my silver and gold. Let me open the safe. I got some special stuff in there. And what I also thought was amazing is that Cyrus gave it all back. Right? So he was like, yeah, I want, it's like everyone gets a tax return, right? We're just opening it all up. Tax returns for everyone, for you, for you. Cyrus is like, open the treasury, take it, take it. Here, you can have it. And so there's this idea that God can supply whatever his people need, whatever they need to get them home. And he can cause people to just give it to you, to give favor. And so that, that was a detail that you read in Exodus when God's leading the Israelites out of Egypt. The Egyptians gave them stuff. Here, take these clothes, take this gold, take this food. And there's this sense of hope in God's provision. Right? We're, we've talked about this idea of being in exile. We're living here, we're on earth. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's this description of all these people who trusted God in faith and didn't receive anything, who who are waiting, who died waiting. It says, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Right? I'm not home. I'm looking for home. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We're all, in a sense, waiting for God to bring us home to the heavenly city. That's what Nate said he read the end of Revelation. That's what happens. The heavenly city comes down on the new heaven and the new earth. We're people waiting. This whole story in Ezra has this echoes of the exodus of people waiting to be led out. God waiting to bring people home. The, the plan for followers of Jesus is one day he brings you home to himself. Right? We're not seeking, this isn't home. The kingdom of God is our home. And so we're waiting for that. We're a people in exile waiting for God to bring us home. So here's, here's the point today. God can move anyone at any time to bring redemption. Let me make some applications. This brings incredible hope right 
it's incredible hopeful when there's wars going on, when there's decisions made by rulers that you're like, what, what are these decisions? And this is terrible. And this is not our values and not the gospel. You know, God's working. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know his plans. Why is there a war here? Why is this here? I don't really know. I don't have, you know, the playbook from Jeremiah telling me that. I don't have that, that clear. But I know that he can turn anyone. He can do anything he wants to do at any time, whether they worship him or not. God can move anyone. It's hopeful. I also love this idea that God moves in an unlikely way. If you would have thought, okay, God, come up with a plan to fix Jerusalem and to send the people back, he'd probably, you know, would you have thought, well, we'll just have a new ruler take over as the most powerful guy in the world, and he'll give them their money back and send them home. Like, I wouldn't have thought that. And so God moves in unlikely ways. I've always been amazed. Years ago, I was trying to go and be on Squalicum's campus at lunch. It was brand new. It was like the year 2000, I think. They just built Squalicum High School as a youth pastor. And I said, I want to go up there. I want to be on campus. And they said, no, this is a closed campus. No young life. No youth pastors. You're not coming. All right. So we just prayed about it and said, I guess we're not coming. And someone in the administration, I don't remember if it was a vice principal or something, was a Christian. And so they knew who we were a little bit, and they knew we had some youth group kids there. And then one day, two kids from the youth group got in a big fight. And they called up, and they're like, you know, we think you better get up here on campus. We're like, perfect. We just needed kids to fight each other, and which we weren't really thrilled about. Thank you for bringing the name of Northwest such disrepute. But I got to go to lunch. every. I went once a week for years up there. Just took a fight. My favorite's still been Hans, who's the director of the mission, when he's been working with the city to create a low-barrier shelter. He's told the story, but to me, it just illustrates this point that God can do anything. They said, we want to work with you to have a low-barrier shelter. And they said, we will give you all this money. We will pay for it. We will fund it if you staff it. And Hans is like, yes, we want to do that. They said, we just have this one problem. You keep wanting to talk to people about Jesus at the mission. We need you to not do that. And Hans says, well, I have to do that. And they're like, but why? Why can't you just not do it for this one part and we'll pay for it and you just don't talk about Jesus and it'll all work out? And Hans like, well, we can't do that. And they said, well, why? So they brought Hans in front of the mayor and the city council and said, please tell us why you have to talk about Jesus. And Hans said, well, thank you very much. So he explained to the mayor and the city council the gospel why spiritual change is actually the change that makes a difference in your life. And uh, they came up with this cool plan. They said, okay, here's what we'll do. The city will fund the overnight portion of the mission because everyone's sleeping and you don't have to talk to the gospel about the gospel when people are sleeping. That was their solution. So during the day, they could talk about Jesus all they wanted. But I just thought it was amazing. If I called up tomorrow and said, I want to come to the next city council meeting and share the gospel, what do you think they'd say? <laughs> Beat it, right? There's no way. There's no way. But God was able to orchestrate that so that they heard the gospel. Uh, and I don't remember how all that plan worked out. But the point was Hans didn't back down. The Lighthouse Mission is 100% still faith-based gospel ministry. They share the gospel. And the city officials got to hear it explained to them. God moves in unlikely ways. Also, there was two sent times in there where it said God stirred the hearts. Did you catch that? It says God stirred Cyrus's heart. And then it said God stirred the people's heart to go back. 
And um, I just, I firmly believe God is stirring hearts. I've told about how uh, I've just had this stirring that we just prayer walk this street and Peter would go with me and Crystal goes with me and we just walk from here down to big lots and back and we pray with anyone who is out there. And a few weeks ago, Chris and I were coming back, and there was this other guy out there. He was dressed pretty nice. He had some kind of like official lanyard with a badge on it. We're like, who's this guy? So he's holding a pizza, and then we see him following this lady, giving her the pizza, a lady who's, who is currently living on the street. And we're like, this doesn't, this doesn't look good. Like, what's, what's going on here? And he kind of followed her around, and there's this place where you can go under the overpass where there's people living. And he followed her that way, and both Chris and I were like, this is bad. Is this guy taking advantage of her? Is he giving her a pizza? We were just had this horrible, like, ah, this is awful. We got to leave. It just felt terrible. And then he appeared again. We're like, oh. It's like, we got to go talk to him right now. We got to go talk to that guy. What, I, I was kind of getting mad. Like, what is this guy doing down here? So I go over and talk to him. And his lanyard was actually a Whatcom Community College student ID. So we're like, oh, okay, you're not. And I said, we're like, well, what, are you, what are you doing? He's like, oh. He's like, I'm a year sober. I'm living in a clean and sober house. I'm living for Jesus, and I just want to help any way I can. So I just got this pizza here. She said she didn't have any lunch. She wanted me to come down and meet her brother. And he's like, I decided not to go down there. He's like, well, I'm just trying to spread the faith. And I was like, oh, okay. I was so relieved. But I just found it amazing that the Lord stirred that guy's heart to go down there. He's only a year sober himself. He's like, I'm just trying to love on people, tell them about Jesus. If they're hungry, I buy them a pizza. Because God stirred his heart to do it. And I believe God is stirring hearts right now. Right? He stirred Cyrus's heart to do this one thing. He stirred the people's heart to go. They didn't all go. Some stay in, ba- in uh, Babylon. What's he stirring your heart? Are you sitting there and he's going, I want you to do this thing. Are you doing it? Or are you kind of going, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to go do that. So I just want to encourage you to think about God's stirring hearts. One more and then I'll be done here. God redeems even rebels. Do you realize who this was? (laughs) We just read at the end of 2 Chronicles how terrible the people were. God took the time to send them a prophet. And they're like, yeah, kill that guy. We're tired of hearing him. Jeremiah, they throw in a pit and hope he dies. Jeremiah is trying to say, turn back to God. This is not a good plan. Like, yeah, get rid of him. They put him in stocks. They throw him in a pit. They don't want to hear the voice of God. They want to continue their evil worship. They want to continue killing their own children. They want to continue with all the cult prostitution and every mess that. They're rebels. I think the only way God got their attention was, I'm just going to have to burn it all down and you're going into exile. Like, that's how I'm going to get your attention. Right? They're rebels. And then you read God saying, okay, I'm coming. You know, I gave it 70 years. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. And the king's going to pay for it. I'm going to do it. Isaiah 54 says, for a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord, your Redeemer. The Redeemer is to set free on the payment of a price. That's why I said God, he's, he's rescuing rebels. He's not rescuing the righteous. He's not rescuing people that are like, got it together. They're in the middle of being punished. And he said, you know what? I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you back. 
And that's the continual story of the scripture. <laughs> you could be a rebel. And he's saying, I'm coming for you. This table we celebrated is a reminder. He died for the rebels. He died for us to say, I don't want to listen to you and I don't want to do it your way. And he's saying, I'm going to die for you and I'm going to bring you home. Right? Come on home. And maybe some of the choices of your life have brought difficult consequences, right? They lived through some, you know, 70 years in exile is a long time. And so you might have faced that. You might be feeling some consequences and he's saying, but come home. Come home. Come home to me. Come home in Jesus. Come to me. I'm a rescuer of rebels. Some thoughts to take home. Don't lose hope. I pray for God to move any heart. Is there something in your life you need moved? Is there a boss? Is there a neighbor? And you're like, God, would you just touch their heart? He can do that. I don't know that he will, but he can. Uh, Maybe you're in a place where you think nothing's going to give. I want you to know God can do anything. He can do anything. If you're in a place where God's stirring your heart, let me encourage you to, to do the thing. To do the thing, no matter how weird it is how out of your comfort zone it might be, if he's saying, I want you to do this thing, I encourage you to follow through. And then finally, if you're a rebel, (laughs) he's calling you home. He's calling you home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for your truthfulness, that you can declare what you're going to do with King Cyrus before he's even born. Or you reign over the kingdoms. You reign over the nations. You're working all things to your purposes. Lord, we just want to pause a moment and give you a moment to talk to hearts. How are you stirring in a heart today? Give us the ability to obey you. Whether you want us to give something or reach out to somebody or start something or stop something. Give us an ability to respond. I just pray for any rebels. They've been resisting you. They've been working against you. They've been doing the opposite of what you've asked. They come home right now. Lord, you have compassion. Lord, if someone's willing to humble themselves, you're willing to meet them there. I just pray you bring the rebels home, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.